A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They arrived in their longships... They went in, they murdered, they took prisoners, they took away all the wealth. In this podcast, we're travelling to a place stained with the first bloody fingerprints of an invader who would change the British Isles forever. A tidal island that by 635 AD was home to a thriving priory. Growing rich and famous around the world, robbed and destroyed with fierce brutality. Eventually rebuilt in the 10th century before being plundered and erased for good by Henry VIII. A beautiful island, tucked away out of sight. It's hard to imagine that it's a place that's been party to so much of the history that has shaped these British Isles. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. Last week we climbed the battlements of Bamburgh Castle and went in search of the legendary King Arthur. Where are we this week? This time we're heading to an island that you can actually see from the battlements of uh, Bamburgh Castle. It's magical. It involves a walk across a long tidal causeway. So you have to time it right or you'll literally be swept out to sea. It's home to a ransacked abbey and a romantic castle. It's a place with two names. It's the Holy Island and it's Lindisfarne. a sort of detailed description of of what it's like to get there it's a good point actually Paul, Um, if you've never been it's hard to visualise actually, it's quite a strange place Um, it's a tidal island, Lindisfarne which is to say that it's connected at low tide by a causeway to the mainland and then at high tide that causeway is, is flooded and Lindisfarne becomes completely cut off so that's a tidal island. So it's in this cycle of belonging to the being part of the mainland and then being cut off. And it comes and it goes with the tide, which adds an air of, of adventure. Because if you're going to go, you've got to time it right. Uh, you've got to pay attention to tide tables and get there at the right time of day for the tides. Otherwise, the causeway's flooded. And likewise, if you make the crossing to Lindisfarne and you don't pay attention to the time and you haven't booked somewhere to stay 
then you'll get you'll get cut off, you know, for for hours. So it's it's important, and it, it but it, it adds an air of kind of uh, swallows and Amazons drama to the whole affair. It's very close, obviously, to the mainland. The causeway, which you can drive across in your car, is just about a mile long, dead straight, which is just slightly raised up above the mud flats, the sand, the wet sand. So it's always a bit wet. Even when the t- even when the tide's out, you're in no doubt that you're travelling over sandbars and, and whatever to, to get to Lindisfarne. So it's it's exciting. Viewed from above, Lindisfarne's it's an odd shape of a thing. There's a main lump of it, which is where the little village is and where the castle is and where the where the abbey is. And then there's also this, I always think of it as being like, if you if you imagine a bit of chewing gum, that, that someone's stretched a bit out. So there's this long, thin stretch with a tiny little clump nearest to the mainland. That's called the snook. That's, that's actually the first bit that you arrive at when you come across the causeway by car. But that's not the only way to go to Lindisfarne, even better there's always been a pilgrim's path and that's a three mile long walk that's marked across the sand uh, by tall wooden poles. Dead straight, easy to do, but if, it, if it's important to pay attention to the tide tables when you're going across the causeway in your car, it's literally a matter of life and death if you were going to do the walk because the tide, as is always the case in these places, it, the tide comes in when it does very, very quickly faster than you can run. So if you're out in the middle, if, you, if you're foolish and you just wander out at any old time, if the tide comes in, you'll end up swimming. And you're, and you're also caught in a, in, in a quite a powerful current. So it's dangerous. But if you, if you pay attention and if you take some local advice, you can walk the three miles. And that's the way that traditionally Christian pilgrims would have always approached the holy island of Lindisfarne. Long before there was anything but being on foot or being on horseback that this is the way that people would have approached it and that's definitely the best way because it's very flat obviously because you're walking across the seabed and and Lindisfarne it depends on the light it's very variable obviously you're off the north you're off the northeast coast of of England so the, the weather's very variable obviously but quite often there's all sorts of uh, combinations of light and mist you can get all sorts of like, optical illusions and, and for the longest time, when, you, when you're walking the pilgrim's way to Lindisfarne, it appears very far away. I always think of it looking like a, a, a length of green rope laid on the sand. Because Lind, Lindisfarne, the island, it doesn't sit up very high, not really. So it's got this very low-to-the-sea profile. And then you can see the bump where the, there's a castle. There's a castle on Lindisfarne as well, and you can, you can sort of see that as well. So it's got a magical, mysterious look. And we talked when we were at Bambra, Bambra Castle, about Arthur and Avalon. And, and the sense of Lindisfarne looking like an Avalon is very strong. There's a real air of, of magic and mystery. So it's one of the places in this love letter to the British Isles that's made special by the journey. Iona's another one. The other, you know, coincidentally, the other holy island... Is a, is a magical mystery adventure to get to involving ferries and all sorts. And likewise, Lindisfarne, which is on the eastern seaboard, bookending the British Isles, two, island, two holy islands, one either side. Then likewise, but in a different way, the journey to Lindisfarne is also special. 
And when you go, you can stay. You know, there's there's limited accommodation because it's only small, and that's brilliant. You, you know, you know to go across and know that you're about to be marooned, you're about to be castaways. That in itself just makes it worth visiting. During the summertime, it can be very busy with day trippers. Obviously, it's a great place to go, but if you wait until all those people have to leave, because if they've got nowhere to stay, they've got to get off the island. And and when they leave, you can almost feel the island um, exhaling. You can almost feel it breathing out, a sigh of relief. And there you are, you've got the place to yourself, if you like. Because apart from the people who are permanent residents, there simply won't be that many people staying on, on Lindisfarne. It's a very dramatic and windswept coast, isn't it? Oh yeah, it can be, it can be, uh, you know, because it's the sea and it can be wild and the weather can come in and it can get stormy and it can be blown a hoolie, but that's all just, that's all just part of the, that's all just part of the pleasure of, of being there. But of course, the, it is, it is one of the Holy Isles. Now, a lot of people have very strong opinions about religion and, and Christianity or whatever, and you know, there's a, a lot of people who, who are and declare themselves to be atheists, which is fair enough. But Christian or not, going there and knowing the, the story of Christianity there is also part of what makes it special. But even if you're a, the most avowed atheist, it's still interesting to know the Christian story because that's so much of what Lindisfarne is, is all about. We've, we've mentioned, we talked about it in relation to Lullingston Roman Villa and Iona. Uh, the Christian religion came into the British Isles with, with Rome during the time of the Roman occupation Rome was originally you know pagan you know during the time of the the conquest of of Britain but during the 300s during the the, the early part of the fourth century AD the Emperor Constantine uh, stopped the persecution of Christians which which had been a blood sport for all up until that point you know the the, the Christians were severely put upon but Constantine had some kind of conversion before his significant battle before he became emperor at, at, at Milvian Bridge on the way to Rome he apparently saw a cross in the in the clouds that, and and saw or, or or understood the message if you put this sign on your on your soldiers you'll be victorious which he duly did and then and that's that's the legend that's how he that's how he comes to be uh, Christian and from that point on Rome was tolerant of Christianity Historians have always argued whether Constantine really was Christian in his heart, because these the Roman emperors they're political people, and a lot of the, a lot of the things, maybe most of the things they did were out of political expediency, uh, and he may just have seen that that Christianity was was the coming thing, that it was on the rise, and perhaps he just wanted it inside the tent, peeing out rather than outside the tent peeing in. And he maybe just saw it as another way to win favour with another chunk of population. Uh, but, you know, there are stories that uh, that he learned Christianity at his mother's knee. Uh, and his, his mother was called Helena, and she was the uh, she was an innkeeper's daughter from a place called Nasus on the Danube. Uh, and she was obviously married to his father, who was Constantius Chlorus, who was emperor before him. So there's always been a, a tradition as well that he was Christian, that he genuinely was. But in any event, in any event, uh, 
the Roman Empire became took the decision to become tolerant of Christianity, and and while the Romans were in Britain, as we saw at, at Lullingston Roman Villa down in the southeast, Christianity just came in, just kind of drifted in like a like a sea mist, if you like. Uh, pilgrims, churchmen started early Christians started coming in, and all the while during the centuries of the Roman occupation, Christianity was safe in Britain, and it, it took it took firm hold. But then, during the uh, the 400s, during the 5th century, Rome had problems of its own. They pulled their legions out of Britannia. And when Britain, when these islands were left alone, uh, the, the people who had been Christian showed themselves to be backsliders. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of them. Um, and, these, you know, they'd obviously still remembered the, the pagan ways of their forefathers. Uh, and without the Romans there to keep it Christian... Uh, they went back to a lot of them went back to their old pagan ways, and it, once again, as it had been before, it became difficult for Christians, and Christianity was discouraged, and, and it became it became difficult, and it it was pushed to the fringes, so you know down into Cornwall, uh, across into Ireland, which had never been dominated properly by Rome, uh, and then in the west coast of Scotland, Christianity clung on like stubborn ivy holding on to the outside of a building um, and it, it was important actually that Ireland was never Romanised in the way that the rest of Britannia was because it, it meant that the Christian faith that took root there and Christian uh, fathers had, had got into Ireland the same way they'd got into everywhere else it, it grew as a kind of a variant form of the same plant it was different like with all faiths, you know, like with like with Islam and Christianity, there are different sects of it. Different different people within the faith have different ideas about how how best to do it. And the Irish Celtic form was a, a style all its own. And then after the after the century or so, when when Christianity was almost lost in the British Isles and elsewhere, when it began to be being reseeded. When, when Christianity began to spread back in, in large part, it was this Irish Celtic form that came back in. The other more sort of Roman Christianity was all, was also there, but there was the there was the Irish Celtic form as well, and it was so it was that unique and and individual style of of Christianity that started to to drift back in, and it was Irish Christianity that uh, arrived in Iona with with St Columba. Now, one of the Anglo-Saxon kings who had been Christianised was Oswald. And we mentioned Oswald in relation to uh, Bambra when we were doing a, a love letter from Bambra Castle. Oswald was the king of, of Northumbria and when he came into his kingship, he brought with him a monk from Iona called Aidan, later remembered as Saint Aidan. And because Oswald had Northumbria, he gave Aidan Lindisfarne. In the same way that Columba was given Iona on the west to develop a monastery there, on the east side, in Northumbria, uh, King Oswald gave Aidan Lindisfarne and said, you know, have your base of operations there. And what was Oswald's connection to Iona? Well, Oswald, he was in exile for a while 
a lot of these kings off you know the, the story of the Anglo-Saxon kings a lot it's so violent you know and a lot of the, a lot of the, the claimants on thrones they're they're in exile for periods and then when they figure the time is right or when the right person dies and you know vacates a throne you know they'll, they'll take a chance at, at coming back to reclaim their, their kingship for a while Oswald was on Iona he was because he was Christian he was in exile there so he knew Aidan so, you know so by the time he came back into Northumbria from Iona he had friends, Christian friends, and Aidan was one of them. So he brought him with him. And Northumbria was, was Christian before Oswald anyway. There was a, a king before him who was Oswald's father, who was King uh, Edwin. And, and there's a lovely story about him, the Venerable Bede. Uh, and he wrote his own history of the British Isles, you know, paying particular attention to all things Christian because he was a churchman. He was based in the northeast. Uh, and he wrote down the legend that King Edwin was the one who was converted from the pagan way of life to Christianity. And he was having Christianity pitched at him by, you know, sort of door, door-to-door salesmen, <laughs> you know, were knocking on his door, suggesting to him that, you know, he, he might like to, to contemplate converting to Christianity. And he was a thoughtful person and he, uh, he took advice from his lords, you know, his, his men around him, his fighting men. And one of them famously, according to the Venerable Bede said, life is like a banquet hall. Inside is light and fire and warmth and feasting, but outside it is cold and dark. A sparrow flies in through a window at one end, flies the length of the hall and out through a window at the other end. This is what life is like. At birth we emerge from the unknown and for a brief while we are here on this earth with a fair amount of comfort and happiness. But then we fly out into the cold and dark and unknown future. If this new religion can lighten that darkness for us, then let us follow it. Now, it's all very poetic and beautiful, but apparently Edwin took this advice, thought it made sense. Why not? Why not hedge your bets? Why not convert to to Christianity? Because it was offering life after death. It was offering the possibility of continued warmth, you know, rather than just having the warmth of, of happiness while you're briefly alive, Christianity offered eternal life and eternal happiness. And so, quite rightly, a lot of people were thinking, "Well, why not?" That sounds that sounds like a, that sounds like a good that sounds like a, a good offer. So, in any event, you've got you've got Oswald on the throne of, of Northumberland at that time, uh, and he brings in Saint Aidan from Iona, and there's a, a, a Christian priory is established uh, on Lindisfarne in, in 635 AD. And Aidan sounds like an interesting character. It was said that he always walked if he could. He was very reluctant even to get on horseback. You know, it was all part of his, I suppose, the idea that, you know, as a Christian, there's an element of suffering and, 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 and enduring hardship. And so he, he walked everywhere. And so it's easy to imagine that he would have been one of those who followed the, the, the pilgrim's way, who walked the three miles across the sand. Uh, to this place and in exactly the same way as Iona if you go to Lindisfarne it's the place that suggests by itself that it's already sacred in that way that certain places in the world are just made special by the hand of natural elements they're just better than everywhere else some way in which the light and the landscape and the weather, the way in which all of the elements combine in certain little pockets, just they declare those places 
worthwhile, sacred, holy. So that when people come with a new version of holiness, like Christianity was the new, they were the new kids on the block. And you get the distinct feeling in a place like Lindisfarne that when they arrived, they would know, yes, this is a place that's already touched by something holy. And this is therefore the right place for us to uh, embed our idea, which is Christianity. You know, Lindisfarne is just one of those places. And so that so the Christianity takes root there. And it, and it grows and, it, and it does, it's not just any old Christian centre. It becomes one of the brightest lights in all of Christendom. The Priory, the, the, the Christian community on Lindisfarne becomes one of the most significant places for Christians in the entire world. And it's obviously there's the Lindisfarne Gospels, which is a, a version of the, of the four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And the, the Lindisfarne Gospels are associated with the, with the island. They, they, may, they may have been written on Lindisfarne. It's hard to tell now, but they're very much associated with Lindisfarne. You know, at least some of the work of the creation of them seems to have been done uh, on that island. And so, although it's a, a place on the edge now, out on the fringes, overlooked by most, this is an opportunity to invite yourself to think about times when other places mattered. You know, forget your Londons and forget your Manchesters, your Belfasts and your Glasgows. You know, for a while, Lindisfarne, that was the place. That was, that was the brightest light, literally and metaphorically, and it, and it was drawing people from, from all over. Uh, the most famous of all the characters, you know, Iona has its Columba, while Lindisfarne has Cuthbert. He's by far and away the most famous saint. He was in charge of the priory uh, from 665 AD, and he died in 687, and he lived all that time on the island. And it was said, 11 years later, after he, after he died and was buried on the island, uh, the monks decided that they, they should give him a grander sarcophagus. You know, that they'd buried him in too simple a fashion and they ought to move him to somewhere a bit more uh, befitting a saint. And according to the legend, after 11 years, they opened his coffin and they said that his body was uh, incorrupt, that it hadn't changed, that he still, he still looked as if he was as perfect as he had been in the day and the hour that they that they put him into the ground. You know, take from that take from that what you will. There was great artworks as well there, weren't there? Oh the well the Lindisfarne Gospels, for example, are, are regarded by some people who know about such things as some of the finest art ever created by anyone anywhere. Because the, the Lindisfarne Gospels, although the although the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are there, faithfully faithfully copied out it was understood that many people were illiterate, couldn't, couldn't read, and so there had to be more. So it's lavishly illustrated. So, that, so there's pictures for, basically, there's pictures for people that can't read. Uh, and, and it's regarded as a, as, a, as a high point, which to some extent was never surpassed. That, you know, that there's other art from other periods that's as, that's as good and as important, but nothing... Nothing better in a sense. So, so this was the kind of um, atmosphere that you have to imagine prevailing on this little island. By the 9th century, which is to say by the 800s AD, um, it, it was one of the most important places in Christendom. And so inevitably, as well as attracting the attention of nice people, <laughs> good people, it, it attracted the attention of, uh, of people with, with more earthly, earthly desires. 
Vikings arrived and the Vikings were pagan so they didn't care a whit for the idea that this was a, a holy place it meant nothing to them and you've, we've, we've also mentioned before when we were talking uh, that the Vikings had quite astutely realised uh, that these Christian people were gathering every Sunday in these special buildings and better yet those special buildings were full of important things because the, the, these Christian communities they were in the habit of say in the case of the Lindisfarne Gospels and other holy books they were in the, in the habit of covering them with, with gold and precious jewels and on the altars there were golden cups you know, for the Eucharist and all the rest of it so the Vikings knew that if they just turned up at these places especially on a Sunday the entire community from miles around was liable to be all in the one place so that they could go in round them up take them away sell them as slaves and at the same time gather up all the wealth of the community at the same time well, one of the one of the earliest experiments with this as a new economic business model, if you like, was at Lindisfarne. The men from Horoland uh, in western Norway uh, turned up on Lindisfarne on the 8th of June, 793. We know about it explicitly and in detail because of because it happened on a holy island. So it involved a community, a wider community that could write. So the so the Vikings arrived. They arrived in their longships, they went in, they murdered, they took prisoners, they took away all the wealth. And because it was Lindisfarne, I mean, th- th- this is like, it, it, the, the, those filthy pagans could not have put their dirty hands on a more sacred place in the whole world, really, as far as these Christians were concerned. So so Christians in other parts of, of, uh, of Christian Europe wrote about it. It was like the end of the world. This is This is literally like the end of the world. These pagan wolves, you know, have have ravaged Lindisfarne and they've spilt blood in the holiest of holy places. So we know all about it. Uh, and it, and it begins to explain, or it does explain why the Vikings went on from that to always have this terrible reputation for violence, for raping and pillaging, because they had targeted Christians who could write. <laughs> the Vikings couldn't write, so they couldn't write anything, to, you know, any good publicity for themselves. So, so the only things that were being written about Vikings were being written about people that they were killing. So they, hence the bad press. But so the so the Vikings very early had this terrible, uh, you know, uh, uh, reputation. And this was only the start of it for for Christian Britain. It may not even have been the first. You know, the Vikings may have come in at other communities elsewhere. But because they arrived at Lindisfarne, that one got remembered. There may have been earlier attacks against people who couldn't write against just some rural community somewhere on the the coastline of the British Isles. It's hard to say. Uh, But after they arrived uh, at Lindisfarne in 793 AD, they they never went away again. And, And literally, you know, the Vikings are still among us. You know, there's Viking DNA that's marbled through the, 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 the tribes of Britain. So then, having, having arrived at the end of the 8th century, they never go away again. Uh, and for a, for a long time, they just keep on turning up and doing these, uh, doing these violent things. And, and what, it, what it meant on Lindisfarne was within a couple of years, at most, of being attacked on Lindisfarne, the Christian community just uh, upped, upped sticks and left. They were so tired of the, of the... or they were so appalled by what had happened that they upped sticks. They took the remains, the bones, the relics of St Cuthbert, and they just left Lindisfarne behind. 
and they wandered for years. And then eventually settled with, with St Cuthbert at, at Chesterley Street. And then eventually their descendants built the cathedral at Durham. But then by the, by the end of the 11th century, they had come back to Lindisfarne from Durham Cathedral. And what they built then, I mean, whatever, whatever Christian community was built, say, under the time of Cuthbert or earlier, w- was probably quite a modest place. It wouldn't have been as terribly grand as what was then built at the end of the 11th century by the monks who had returned to the island from Durham. So it was at that point that the priory, the, the ruins of which are there to this day, that's when that was built. And it lasted, this lavish, large, stone-built religious building until the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. So it lasted for centuries. But then the dissolution of the, of the monasteries under Henry VIII, it was, it, it, all, it was stripped of all its valuables and it quickly became a building site. And it, so it was at that point, cause it was good, good building stone. And so, the, so what was salvaged and scavenged from the, from the ruined uh, monastery was used then to build the castle. And it's the castle which, to some extent, so defines Lindisfarne, funnily enough, because it gives it a very distinctive shape. The castle sits up on a crag of rock called Biblo Crag, and then it subsequently became a ruin. And then, fascinatingly, because you turn up and you see this castle, it's like a fairy tale castle. Uh, but in actual fact, it's a bit of a confection. It, it was a ruin. It was left, it was ruined for, for centuries. And then it was acquired in the early part of the 20th century, or just about the turn of the 20th century, by Edward Hudson, who was a publisher of magazines, including Country Life magazine. So he, he bought the ruin, and he then uh, asked his friend, the architect and sculptor Sir Edwin Lutyens, to, to rebuild a castle for him. Now, Edwin Lutyens uh, is the sculptor who, who subsequently built the cenotaph, the, the memorial to the fallen of the First World War that's in Whitehall. Okay, so but before, before building the cenotaph, Edwin Lutyens created this fairy tale castle for his friend on the island. So, l- like so many of these places, it's layer upon layer upon layer. Just as at Bambra Castle, you know, it's, Bambra Castle's now held by the Armstrong family, but they've only had it since the, the end of the uh, 19th century, turn of the 20th century. But there are, you know, centuries, millennia of history that go back. And so it is with Lindisfarne. You know, people go there to see the castle. And the, the castle that you see now is, is, a, is a modern fantasy of a castle in every meaningful sense. But then there's the ruins of the, of the monastery. And, and it was built, when it was built, by people who had come from Durham. And those people were at Durham because they were the original exiles from Lindisfarne. You know, Durham Cathedral was built by the descendants of those who abandoned Lindisfarne because of the Vikings. And, and you've got the Viking, you've got the Viking fingerprints there as well. And the, the Viking story is another of those parts. You know, we'll come to it again and again as this story unfolds. But the, the Vikings are part of Britain. They are, they are, they are, once they arrived, once they arrived in the 700s and in the early 800s, they, they settled and they liked the place so much they just decided to stay. And what the Vikings eventually did, it's a bit like Kaiser Soze. <laughs> it's a bit like Kaiser Soze in The Usual Suspects. You know, they, they managed to disappear, you know, 
the cleverest thing the devil ever did was persuading the world he didn't exist. The Vikings just stopped calling themselves Vikings. Eventually the Vikings became Christianized, and very cleverly they just began speaking the local language, wearing the local clothes, taking on the local customs, and people after a while forgot they were they were even there. So, so that so that the Vikings are just there invisibly among us, from from Orkney to to all over. The Vikings are part of the are one of the tribes of the British Isles, and if for no other reason, you can go to Lindisfarne, and there you find the earliest bloody fingerprints of that people there on the beach at Lindisfarne. The island has this important and bloody history, but if you go there now, it's peace personified, isn't it? Yes, it's it's strange, isn't it? All that drama, and then an atrocity. What happened to the to the Christian community of Lindisfarne in seven nine three A.D. was was nothing less than an atrocity, a gruesome horror inflicted upon unarmed people by violent attackers, and yet obviously that you know the passage of time and the and the power of the elements in the same way that the that the waves and the weather round the jagged corners off of a stone until it's a, a smooth pebble that's pleasant to hold in your hand. So so the passage of time has, has had the same effect on Lindisfarne and, and the drama and, and the violence and, and the sadness and the grief has all been softened and washed away. And there's no denying it, isn't it is now a place of peace. And you go there and you walk across the sands for three miles or you take your car across and you park up and you wander about and it's some days on Lindisfarne it's like wandering about in a dream. There's an atmosphere that has that has settled in that kind of Brigadoon lost paradise sense. When the weather is just right and the and the day is just right and the light is just right, you feel as if you've walked into one of the anterooms of heaven itself. It's just lovely. And it's a place of peace and contemplation. Whether you have religious feelings or no religious feelings at all, there's still balm, salve for the soul to be had on Lindisfarne. I would defy anyone. You go there, onto the heath and the and the and the seagrass and the and the beach, and wander around Lindisfarne, and you will just feel the knots in your rope being untied for you, and you'll come away a better person. culture and a way of life trampled underfoot by brutal invaders. The men were driven off or slaughtered in a systematic genocide. Pictish roundhouses and carved stone artworks were smashed or repurposed. A beautiful island that has seen so much. Where the Vikings came, not just to plunder, but to stay. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles, Check out my Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter. And to ensure you get each new episode of the podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. The social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. 
Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.